If you would, grab your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Acts in chapter number one. Working on quite a bit um, as far as sermon series for this year. We'll be going through Romans 9, 10, and 11. We'll be studying dispensationalism and testing it with the Scripture. We're going to talk about the proper use of election in the Bible. But all those things are going to be after I come back uh, from India. I'm planning to go there the first week of March, so continue to pray for me and uh, for the opportunities that are there. I was talking with Dr. Ron Citron, and he told me, you're going to need uh, 15 sermons, and you're going to be teaching on whatever subject you'd like. Um, it's a 50-minute class period, but you are only going to have 18 minutes. And I was like, one of two things must be true. He either knows that I'm really bad at math, <laughs> or there's something that would hinder me from going full-time. And he said, for every minute that you speak, there's going to be a translator. And I was like, oh. So those of you who know me know that I say a lot. So I, it's not really 15 messages of just prepared, you know, and I just teach from it. I got to type up scripts and make sure I'm saying exactly what needs to be said. I'm also teaching in the college right now, which is just, I love it. I'm teaching three times a week, uh, the life of Christ. We are doing this class. This is the fourth time I've taught this class, and this is the one that's going to go onto the website. So we're looking forward to that. But just if you find it when you're at home and you're looking for something to pray for, please pray for me. There's a lot that's going on. I'm not overwhelmed by it. This is exactly what I want to do with my time. But I want to make sure that I also do the best I can with the opportunities that are presented to me. Speaking of that, we had a good Bible study yesterday. Um, last week, I said that Dr. Gilbert was going to speak, and he said, no, no, I'm not until February. But then Dr. Myers wasn't able to make it, and so guess who led the study uh, yesterday? No, no. <laughs> but uh, he did, as I, excuse me, as I said, uh, he did lead the study. <laughs> he did a great job, and um, I want to encourage you if, you, if you, if you see Dr. Gilbert, maybe ask him for a copy of those notes, because what he looked at, it was all Scripture, it was about two and a half pages of Scripture, and then some application from that Scripture, but what was studied was, what does the Bible say about God's sovereignty? You know, what, what does it mean that, that God is sovereign? Because there's a very big difference between what the Westminster Confession says is sovereignty and what the Scripture says is sovereignty. Uh, and you won't know that difference if you only read commentaries or interpretations on God's sovereignty, which are all kind of infected. You may say, oh, that's a bad word. Well, that is the result, infected from this Westminster Confession. But he went through and went passage after passage and demonstrated the true understanding of sovereignty and man's responsibility to God's sovereignty, which is a huge point of discussion amongst Calvinism and Arminianism, uh, which we don't line up with either of those. We believe all who want to believe can get saved. Amen? Anybody. It's, it, it's an open uh, invitation to all. But we went through a great study, and then afterwards we busted up the concrete in the back, and we filled the, the largest pothole was going to affect other patches. So we used about 14 bags of concrete. That's just like base man. You know, that's like, that was so sad. Big hole, 
fill hole, flatten, look, mm, good, you know, like, <laughs> it was great. Uh, <laughs> we were not able to get all of the potholes because of time, but you'll see back, when you, when you drive back there, there are some that are cut out. Um, we kind of fill them with dirt a little bit so that it's easier for you to drive over them, but eventually, probably this weekend, we'll fill the rest of those, but I want to thank everybody who came out to the study and uh, was able to participate. Thanks to Dr. Gilbert. Thanks to David Guisto. He did an excellent job uh, preparing food. It's, no, it's nothing better than getting spiritually fed and physically fed. Amen. We burned it all off, lifting concrete, you know. <laughs> and then the ladies had their study yesterday at uh, Village Inn, and I, I heard that was a good time of fellowship too. So what we're going to look at today is Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost, and you may say, oh, we're going to get to a proper explanation of Acts 2.38. We're going to finally lay it down to see what's there. Well, yeah, that'll be a part of it. But I want you to see the importance of this message and how Peter, once again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, lays out a case and then makes that case using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, which is the Messiah. Not only the Messiah to Israel, but to those who are afar off. If you're taking notes, write down that phrase, afar off, A-F-A-R-O-F-F. Those are people who either they're dysphoria Jews, meaning they're like Samaritans who have the mixed Jewish culture and uh, secular culture, or Gentiles who are not a part of the, the chosen nation of Israel. The idea is that Jesus has come to redeem all by taking on the sin of the world and paying for it. When we look and understand that as the whole thrust of the book of Acts, you're going to be able to understand difficult passages much easier. Studying things in context is the key to your success. I tell people this all the time. Get a paragraph Bible, and if you're doing a daily devotional, um, you know, read through the paragraph Bible. One of two things is going to happen. The first thing is you're going to notice, why would I stop here right in the middle of the page? You know, it's the, the, the chapter and verse divisions, they're not inspired, they're not bad either, but they kind of have disciplined us to stop in chapters, you know, like almost like a thought is closing. But if you have a paragraph Bible, if you have a really good one, just in the upper right-hand corner or left-hand corner, it'll tell you this page has this chapter and verse through it. But when you read it, there's no little numbers, there's no nothing like that. You can kind of read it as it was intended, and it's, it's helpful for you to get a full picture. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, in that way, you're going to find very quickly that the whole point of the Apostles' preaching was not to get people to turn from sin. It was to get them to change their mind about Jesus. If you look at it as almost a campaign, Jesus was a very controversial figure. People knew of him. Remember, when, what happened when he walked into Jerusalem? Hosanna! Hosanna, what is that translated as? God, save us now. Jesus comes in, immediately he looks over Jerusalem, and what is his response? He says, how often I would have gathered you together, but ye would not. And it, it shows you by Jesus' reaction to his triumphal entry reception that what the Jews were looking for differed from what Jesus was actually coming to do. Now he knew all of this. Now when he died and he was risen again, there were a lot of people that were beginning to you know, develop theories. Well, what happened? What's the leading theory of the day and even of today's time? The disciples uh, stole away the body. That's a common theory. If you study 
the, the ceiling of the tomb and the Roman garrison that was put there, these guys were not going to be able to just move that, even if it was all 11 of them, we're not just going to be able to move that and kind of, you know, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy sneak by the Roman guards and let's get his body in and, and uh, dispose of it. That's not what happened. Um, the Pharisees and scribes and elders paid off uh, the Roman government to push this theory uh, that Jesus had his body had been stolen. But the apostles now, we're going to study when they received the Holy Spirit, which is the day of Pentecost, which is the birth of the church. And we're going to see what was the first thing that they did with these gifts. And then when Peter spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit, what did he choose to say? What was the audience's response? What was Peter's response to the audience? And then what did the audience do after understanding Peter's response? You look at it in that way, you're going to see a real detailed plan of salvation. And for you and I, here we are in 2024, we need to understand things like this and, and get them, memorize them, understand where the Old Testament and the New Testament line up, and then use this in our approach. Dr. Gilbert was talking yesterday about something that Richard Seymour, I think it was uh, Dr. Richard Seymour, has said that there were two guys talking, and one of them said, well, what kind of Christian are you? He said, well, I'm a Baptist. And what kind of Baptist? Well, Southern Baptist. What kind of Southern Baptist? Uh, well, born-again Southern Baptist. What kind of born-again Southern Baptist? Non-charismatic, born-again Southern Baptist. What kind of... Okay, you see how that goes. Like, there can be so many delineations of denominations. And what Dr. Seymour had said was, one of the guys said, well, I've known two kinds of non-charismatic, born-again Southern Baptists. The one that is a non-charismatic, born-again Southern Baptist and knows he's going to heaven... And the non-charismatic, born-again Southern Baptist who does not know he's going to heaven. Which one are you? That's really good. That's, that's the whole point. You can, you can get to titles, and you can let those titles kind of determine what kind of Christian you are. But the only difference the Bible makes is those who are lost and those who are saved. I got an email just uh, yesterday, and I'm, I'm realizing now I, I didn't reply to it. But someone had said, why, if salvation is so simple... Why is it so hard for people to believe? Well, that answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, The little g-god of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. When you walk up to somebody and you're sharing the gospel with them, and they have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and know that the devil, through his world system that is fully in effect today, and the demonic fallen angels that are, that are participating in that blinding, have actively blinded that person from the truth. And here you are, you're the flashlight in the middle of the dark. I've seen these videos, they kind of just roll up on social media of people using flashlights that illuminate, it's like the entire night sky. Uh, you never see that guy go, ooh, flip it around and put it in his face, because that would cause damage. But that's pretty much the equivalent of what you're doing when you share the gospel. You are shining the light into the darkness. And when you get somebody that kind of responds harshly or they're rude, or they persecute you as a result of that, no, that's because they love their deeds, and that light that you have revealed exposes their wickedness. Now, that doesn't mean you just uh, move on and say, well, they weren't chosen to believe. you got to love people. You need to have a burden for souls. But you also need to recognize people are going to make their own choices. Our responsibility is to be clear and to be consistent in the way that we give the gospel and how often we give it. Those track racks in the back, they are there for your purpose of getting them 
and getting them into the hands of somebody who has not believed. But everybody who does not trust Christ as Savior will stand before God at the great white throne judgment and give an account. You will stand before God as the believer. You'll stand before the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded for your profitability. That's something between you and God. But we need to be clear and recognize we are, we're, we're carrying flashlights. We're trying to show people to Jesus Christ. When we take that flashlight and we put it in our pocket, or we don't know how to use it, we're not being effective as we can be with this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity we have in this, this life now. This is it. When you get to heaven, you're not going to be leading anybody to Christ. When you get to heaven, you'll be serving the Savior, but it will be in a different way than what you've been doing here. You've got to look at the time that you have right now and say, this is unique. What am I going to do with this time? How am I going to give back to the one who gave me everything? Amen? Start putting things into perspective. You realize, I actually have a great purpose. I have a great responsibility. And it has no way to do with how I vote or where I live or what job I have or my income or anything like that. I'm a child of God and I have a message of the kingdom. Amen? You start believing and and understanding how God views you as his child, you're going to have a lot of joy in your life. And the apostles at this time, they're still looking for the kingdom. Would you believe it? Jesus has taught them for 40 days now. And look in Acts chapter 1. We'll look in verse 6. And don't blame the apostles, all right? These guys are so, (laughs) so silly, so dumb. No, no, don't say that. They are just doing their... They're men like you and me, amen? When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Now let's chat about that statement for a moment. If you were to to back up all the way to Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you'll see that there was a legitimate offer for the kingdom to begin, which would and, and the hearers knew this, which must concluded, the king is here. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that means the one who's going to reign is here. That's why when Jesus came in, they were saying, save us, save us now. But they're looking for a political savior, not someone to take on their sins, which was prophesied in Isaiah 53. And even in the Messianic Psalm that uh, Gary read today, and in Psalm 16, and in Psalm 22, it was very clear, Daniel chapter 9, that the Messiah was going to come, and then he's going to be cut off. But what was not clear was the church. The church was something that God always knew was going to come to pass, but the prophets did not see and understand it. I wanted to put a chart up here on the screen, but it's just, I couldn't get a blurry, nice picture. And if I zoomed in, it would just be, you know, very pixelated. But there's a chart by Larkin. He has some great charts. And it's called the Mountaintop Prophecy. And it's got two mountain peaks and a valley. And the prophets stand on one mountain, and they're looking at the first coming of the Lord, and he's being cut off, and then he comes back with great power. They see straight through there, but they don't see the valley of the church. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, says that this new thing, which is Jew and Gentile together in one body, the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, this new thing was not known by the prophets, so they couldn't have seen it, but now it's being revealed in this time. So when the disciples look at Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, and they say, is the kingdom going to happen now? They have a lot of understanding of how things were supposed to go. The Savior has been cut off. He's come back. 
So now he's going to rule. But there's a collection of people, and you and I are very unique in this, called the body of Christ that was yet to be formed. But he was going to use them to form that. What does Jesus say in verse 7? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. I use this verse a lot when people want answers to things that God has not answered. People are trying so hard to make God accountable to them when they have to realize the things that you have now, like the gospel message, the things like communion, water baptism, uh, the edifying of the body, praying for one another, all sorts of things like that. That is what you are responsible with. It's not for us to go beyond that and say, God, answer me this. Do we have an example of someone who kind of talked that way? It's our good buddy Job. And remember all the suffering that Job went through. He lost his financial ability with all of his cattle. He lost his servants. And he was a good man, so he respected his servants. Then he lost his children. Then his wife told him to curse God and die. Then his three friends spent an absorbent amount of time talking his ear off about how this is his fault, some hidden sin. And then when, God, uh, when Job gets a chance to ask God, God lets him have it. You say, well, that's really mean. No, what's being shown is you trust that God will do right with what you've been given. And those things that you don't know, you probably don't need to know them. What do the apostles want to know here? What, is it it? Is this, is this happening? Is, is this when it's going to be? Jesus says it's not for you to know those times. Aww. It's kind of like the kid that knows there's a surprise that's coming. But you're not going to tell them what it is, and then they throw a fit when they don't know what it is. It's, you almost think, should we even do this? You know, <laughs> like Maybe you're not worthy of it. No, but God has his own timetable going on. You need to be responsible with what he's already given you. What has been given to us, the church? The gospel message. You be responsible with that. Now, in verse 8, he makes this statement. This is called the apostolic commission. This is really what the apostles were going to do in anybody who would believe. Verse 8, but ye shall receive power. This is an interesting statement because we line this up with what they were looking for. They're looking for Jesus' power to come and rule and reign, which he will. They will now receive a, a type of power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So conditional upon receiving this power is the descent of who? the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Now, my Bible students in the audience, which I would pray is all of you, circle witnesses. This is a very important statement. The Bible is a unique book in that it is accurate in its prophecy. This is not the first time that the disciples were hearing something like this. I'll show you that in a minute. But I want you to circle witnesses Tie it to Holy Ghost and power, okay? Then we continue, unto me. That's the next thing that we should maybe put a square around that for more emphasis. This is the purpose of the witness. This is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose of the power. Jesus is the Messiah, period. I get a little worked up when I see these charismatic churches abusing the Holy Spirit as some mystery juice, some smoke, you know, all this stuff. I went to a little play yesterday that my nephew was in, and it was so, there was so much creativity. You guys know the story of Peter Pan, 
right? You know Captain Hook. And what's Captain Hook's biggest fear? The alligator that took off his hand. And what does that alligator do? He gets tick, tock, tick, tock. Well, these guys at this, at this uh, little playhouse there, they had the coolest alligator. It was huge. It wasn't some AI-generated computer graphic thing. And it was three guys in there, and you could see them walking around, but they had a big alligator or a crocodile head and a big tail back there, and it had wheels on it, and it rolled across the stage. And every time it would come up, there'd be smoke, and it's like, ooh, something mysterious. You weren't able to see really what was going on, but then you saw, hey, there's three guys in there. That's not really an alligator. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He's not, ooh, ooh, gotcha, oh, shaking, all that kind of stuff. That is not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? To make the Christian bear witness of Jesus. That's the purpose. So when you look at these charismatic churches, and you see all this stuff that the Holy Spirit is doing, but you don't hear a clear plan of salvation, or any plan of salvation at all, you can rightly conclude that is not of God. So we shouldn't partake in it. I don't go to healing conferences. Do you want to know why? Because the people that go and promote that they don't have clear gospel messages. So what are they selling? Oh, we have a Simon the Sorcerer situation now. Oh, Peter, tell me how I can uh, buy this so I can use it, you know? And what did Peter say to him? You better change your mind about what you think this is and get right with God so you understand this power that can be given. But the purpose, there are, there are four things I want to point out. Power, Holy Ghost, witness unto me. Now, this is where it gets specific to the apostles. In Jerusalem, which is where they were, and in all Judea, this is where you double tap on the screen and it zooms out a little bit, and in Samaria, oh, we don't go there. Yeah, you're going to go there. Why? Jesus has died for all sin. Zoom out even more, and unto the uttermost part of the earth where you go all the way to Tampa. This is what we're seeing here. This is the zooming out. This is why I said earlier, when you see later on, the prophecy in Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2 where it says, and those that are far off, they call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved? Anybody. I see that Jackie Campbell's here, one of the, uh, the missionaries that we support, and her husband Bruce. They're going about in places that we can't reach with the same message. Jesus Christ has died for your sins. Will you put your trust in him and him alone? And they do small groups and they do house programs, and they learn languages that are not good old English. They uh, uh, memorize, uh, learn different languages so that they can better reach people. This is a part of what Jesus started in what we're going to study today. Now, if that doesn't excite you, I don't know, maybe we should stand up and do some aerobics, I'm not sure. But this kind of stuff here should give you a direct link to this work that was done in Acts. You do matter. You do have value. We're all worthy of death, but we have received grace and mercy and forgiveness. And as a part of that, we now have a purpose to reach more people. Now, I said earlier to make sure you underline witness or circle it there. Hold your spot and go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, Jesus here, he has just washed the feet of the disciples He's in the upper, uh, the upper room discourse now. Pretty soon, he's going to be um, captured and beaten and then die for the sins of the world. In John chapter 15, in verse 26 through 27, we have mention about what, is a, what we're about to see fulfilled in Acts chapter 1. 
But he says here in John chapter 15, verse 26, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, when would this happen, before or after Jesus Christ's resurrection? We know it's after. Even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, underline this and maybe put in your reference, cross-reference Acts 1, uh, 8. What does it say? He shall testify of who? Me, which is speaking of himself, who is Jesus. Now verse 27. Ooh, I love this. I just love it so much. And ye shall bear what? Witness. That's why we call it witnessing. Some of you may have just understood that. I understand when I, when I started coming here and I started hearing things like soul winning, I was like, ooh, creepy. I don't know what that means. <laughs> what, soul winning, what are we going to do, you know? Uh, but that's because I had a worldly understanding of those terms. But I understand now when you witness, you are witnessing the testimony of Jesus Christ. This should start to impact the way that you live too. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we are ambassadors, those who go before to represent the nation they come from. If you're a child of God, you have a home in heaven, the nation you represent is eternity. So why would you go and live a life full of sin and wickedness and undisciplined behavior? Is that a good example of the, the eternity that we represent, the Jesus that we represent? No, it's not. See, the gospel just doesn't impact what you say to people. It should impact how you live. You're an ambassador for the truth. But what is said directly here is you shall bear witness because you have been with me from the what? From the beginning. Now, this is an also an interesting statement. We're not going to study it in depth, but when you study the first, uh, 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 first John, you see things, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen and we have both heard. That's the beginning he's talking about. It's not talking about before the foundation of the world, nor is it talking about uh, Adam and Eve. It's talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ at the, at the start of his public ministry. The disciples were with him. They can verify that he is a real person who is God, who was able to do all that he said he was going to do. Ooh, we got a lot of knowledge now, so let's put that knowledge into use. Let's go back to the book of Acts, and we're going to look in chapter 2. Now we're skipping the 10 days of waiting for the Spirit, the choice of Matthias. Not because it's unimportant, but those things do not really apply to what we're going to talk about here. But suffice it to say, 40 days, Jesus ascended, and then they had a 10-day waiting period, and they were in an upper room together when the event of the Holy Spirit came down. Now, charismatic people, oh, they love this, right? They love this part. They see the whole cloven tongues of fire, and they, they use it in the, and I'm not going to say charismatic people in the fact that, talking about people that are just going to those conferences, but people that have knowledge and responsibility, the leaders, they abuse this passage to make it something it's not. I'm going to show you this is the most clickbait title. I'm going to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the gift of tongues, which was used in Acts chapter 2, is not the false gift of tongues that you see today. Number 17 will surprise you. And I say 17 because there were 17 different types of people with different languages and different dialects that heard the apostles in their own language and dialect. 17. You go to a charismatic meeting today, if we were all saying, all right, let's all get in the van, which would be a miracle, if we all got in the van today and we drove down to the nearest charismatic church and we heard the gobbledygook that's going on there, you're not going to have 17 people going, oh, yeah, I, that's, that's, that's Spanish. 
Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's French. Wee oui, wee, oui, yeah, you know, baguette. That's cool. No, no. No one understands it. Do you know why? Because it's not the gift of tongues. I would venture to say the missionaries that I know personally who know multiple languages have a better and closer authentic gift of tongues than all that stuff that Kenneth Copeland and other people do. They're speaking in languages that are known. What is the purpose of getting up and saying something that people don't understand if they can't understand it to where it leads them to the change of mind to believe on Jesus? What's the purpose of that? Who does that elevate? The man in the pulpit. That's who it elevates. And then you see a flash on the screen, little QR code, donate here, and people, and they donate. They send their money. People have, and, and in 2 Peter chapter 2, it says they make merchandise out of us. That is exactly what they do. But let's study a real accurate description of what happened. Acts chapter 2, in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each one of them. Each one of the apostles there received this gift, and they all, excuse me, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So park your, park your mind there for a second and recall John 15, 26 through 27. The Holy Spirit came. They received it. It was from the Father. Now who would they bear witness of according to John 15, 26 through 27? What was the next step? Preach Jesus. They're not going around telling people how they can have financial uh, freedom. They're not going around telling people that, uh, you know, don't go on to Waters Avenue today because I prophesy you'll get in a car accident. That's not what they're saying. They're going to teach Jesus. Now, you, you see, as a pastor, you're stuffing things into one verse that's not there. Well, there's 40-something other verses. We'll study. Look at verse 5. And there we're dwelling at, ooh, Jerusalem. Stop, circle, compare that to Acts 1.8. Where were they going to start this ministry? Jerusalem. So it, it was like, for an, it's just an example, it was like a bombshell went off and here's the radiation rippling out. That's very slow-moving radiation. But we're seeing here, there's the gift. Here's the effect. Starting in Jerusalem. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. These are children of Israel. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the last part of Acts 1.8. And to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, obviously, Jerusalem, very popular place. Especially under Roman rule because all of the feasts that happened there, boy, you could collect some massive taxes with all the people that have to come in and, and, and do their religious rites at the temple. So it, it, this is proof that it's not just Israelites dwelling in Jerusalem. It's everyone everywhere, different people different nations, different people who are not a part of God's chosen people, uh, nation of Israel, like Gentiles, like Samarian, uh, excuse me, Samaritans, which would probably be less likely because they're so, you know, the, the uh, relations were so hostile there. But here we're setting that what you call the audience. And here's what happened. Now, when this was noised, what's, what, what does it mean it was noised? When it was communicated, it started to be gossiped about. Did you hear what happened the other, uh, today? Yeah, this, this is crazy. You know, 
This is what they were doing. The multitude came together and were confounded. So they were confused by what they were hearing and seeing. And I love that word because, because it tells us why they were confused. Why? That every man heard them speak in his own language. You know what that means? These languages existed before the Holy Spirit came down. God is interested in getting people clear, not confusing them. And he gave this gift to those men for the purpose of Peter's message, which is what you'll see. But look at what it says here in verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, "Uh, Behold, are these not the great theologians of the church of Jesus Christ? No, no, that's not. What did it say? Are these not (laughs) which speak Galileans? Ooh, you know? These are are fishermen. Hello, they shouldn't be doing this. These are for the the educated. And verse 8, How hear we every man in his own tongue, and the scripture gets more clear for you, not just their own language, but wherein we were born. So if your parents had a little bit of that southern sauce, you know, what they're hearing coming out of there is that southern sauce in their language. They're going, this is not part of my family. How does he know that? He's not from my town. What's going on here? God's getting ready to declare through these men the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, we said 17. Here's all of them. Parthians and Medes, Eliamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia. Which, by the way, the dwellers in Mesopotamia, that could be multiple. We just know from that region. Uh, In Judea, Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and uh, Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes. Okay, we can stop there. No, no, God wants us to know more. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, and here we go. I want you to imagine we're laying little levels. We see the statement that Jesus made. The Holy Spirit came down. They spoke in tongues. They were able to be heard by the people in their own language. And now the next step is, on top of that, what was it that they were hearing? The wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Obviously, especially educated Jews who knew the Scripture were going, what's happening here? What am I witnessing? I know the, I know the Scriptures. What am I seeing here? Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. What that mean? These guys are absolutely toasted. and Something's going on. Which I always kind of, I laugh at that because it's like, I have, I'm not around a lot of drunk people, but I've seen it, and uh, they're not getting more educated, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Things are not getting better. Uh, but regardless, there were one or two things floating around. Is this of God, or is this of a drug, or, or whatever it may have been? But Peter, now here, here's our man. You think about this man that's going to be used by God. This was the same one who denied the Lord with cursings. Man, we did a study on this, I think it was sometime last year. (laughs) The way I think of things now is either before or after, Remy. Uh, But I I think it was before uh, because we were going through the adoption process. And I remember we, we did a series, you may have remembered this, on Jim Scudder's book called Finding Hope. And it was the study of Peter and how Peter failed miserably, time and time again. And I don't like making fun of Peter because if I'm an honest man, I can see myself 
in some of the and some of the things that he does with my the things that I, when I make mistakes or when I have unbelief of different things, I, a, a constant prayer of mine is two things, that the Lord would open my eyes that I can see what he needs me to see in the scripture and to help me in my unbelief, to help me in the things that I don't understand. And he's answered those prayers. But you look at a man like Peter, Jesus, we see when, Jesus, uh, when uh, Peter denied him, Jesus was able to make eye contact and there was sorrow and love in his gaze. We saw that from the the word that was used in the scripture. Then after Jesus went through the, his, his uh, suffering and his resurrection, he goes to Peter and he says, feed my sheep. I'm not going to focus on the do you love me part because that's another focus, but he gave Peter responsibility. Go do this. Go do this. You're forgiven. Now go be profitable. If that's not a call for those of you that are here today who think you've, you're too far gone, you need to change your mind and see the great value that lies within your life to live it for the Lord. Here's this man now. He's standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice. Not the same guy that when the little girl said, hey, you're with that guy. <laughs> no, I don't know him. And then a little campfire worth of people pressed him about it, and he denied it totally. Now he's standing up. He's going to talk to we see 3,000 come to faith in Christ as a result of this. There's probably way more that hurt him. This man had confidence, not in himself, but in the message he carried and the person that message taught about. And that is something that is unique. He's not going up there going, I'm so glad I took public speaking at the local college this past week. This is a perfect time. That's not what he's saying. He knows exactly what he wants to say. He's speaking with power and truth now, and he's got the Holy Spirit. This, what you're going to see, is the drawing of the Holy Spirit. The Son of Man has been lifted up. Well, how so? He was lifted up physically on the cross. We're still talking about Jesus today. What's the drawing? The truth of Jesus Christ. Fulfilled prophecy, all of that. And said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Now, I want you to see this here. He addressed Israel first, and then he said, All ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Was it only Israelites in his audience? No, but he's, he's going to focus on what Israel has done to their Messiah. But I want you to understand here, when we get to Acts uh, chapter 2 and verse 38, the invitation is for anybody who heard that. You, this is what you must do now to receive this forgiveness. But primarily he's going to be speaking to the Jewish people. Be this known unto you and hearken my words. Let's, now we're going to start. We're going to move a little quicker than we have. And instead of going to the references in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you the references. The reason why is because a lot of what we're going to study here today is literally a direct quote. So instead of taking the time to go all the way over there and read something that we're reading again, I'll give you the reference so you can have it and look it up. If you have a Schofield Bible, his center notes or his center references here are great. They're really good. I'm not really sure about the bottom note because I'm not going to study all of that. But his center reference here, it's really good. And you can see it there too. For these are not drunken. Why did he say that? Because of the, the uh, attack or claim that was made in verse 13, they're full of new wine. These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. I mean, even it was common in that time. It's too early for any of that. But... This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, this is from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And I believe Peter is going to quote the whole thing for, for, for this reason. 
What is happening here at Pentecost in Jerusalem by the apostles is not the literal fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, but instead it is a picture of the Spirit working in this time as He's going to work at the second coming. You're going to see some things here in Joel chapter 2 that Peter quotes directly that did not happen on that day. And if they did, it would have had to kick in Jesus coming back. But look at what he says here. And it shall come to pass in the last days. This is where I think the focus is. This is the last great salvation call for man. What's next on the timetable for us? We have the rapture. We have the tribulation period broken into two, three and a half years uh, segments. And then we have the Lord coming back, beginning the kingdom of heaven here on earth for a thousand years. Then we have the, the last great rebellion when the devil is loosed. Heaven and earth will be destroyed. There'll be a new heaven and new earth. And in between that, there'll be the great white throne judgment. That's what's coming up next. A lot of history has passed before we got to this time. The formation of Israel, the promises to Abraham, all that, the law, all this stuff leading up to, this is God's, this is him saying, we are in the last times. That's what I think the significance of Joel chapter 2 being quoted here means. I don't think it's a literal fulfillment, although there are comparisons here. But I believe as Peter is talking to, to, to Jews, he's saying, if you know the scripture, by the way, Joel was published. They, they, could, they could go to the temple and see these things. He wasn't quoting from something that hadn't been written yet. They would see, oh, these things are similar. Look at what it says, uh, middle of 17. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Those things had not come to pass, but there were similarities now between what the apostles were doing as children of Israel. Remember, they're Jews who believed on their Messiah and so received the promise of the Holy Spirit so that other unconverted Jews would be converted. Do you see the purpose here? That's what's going on. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Now some commentators think that this is the very beginning, that we're living in the tribulation period now because of this statement. That's why I don't think that this is a direct fulfillment of Joel 2. I think there are comparisons drawn here to the way the Holy Spirit's going to work in that time is the same way he's working in this time. So I'm giving authenticity to my message. This is of God. This is what Peter's saying. This is what he's drawing a conclusion of. Now, verse 21 is very important. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This event that we studied in Joel 2 is going to happen at the end of the rapture, or excuse me, of the tribulation period. And as a result, all of those who call on the name of the Lord will experience physical deliverance. This is not to be conflated with the vocalization of Jesus save me, giving a person eternal life. If you just think about how that would work, a person believes first, and then they confess what they believe. Where is salvation accomplished according to Romans chapter 10? With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. You believe first here, and then as a Jew, it's important for you to say it so that other of God's chosen people can become a part of the body of Christ and experience not only uh, spiritual deliverance, but also physical deliverance at that time. This is one of those things where you have to study and see. Not every use of the word saved, sozo, or, or, or salvation equals eternal life. 
he bases that as an authenticity of this is why we're speaking in tongues. This is why you can hear us in these different languages. Then he's going to make two claims. Please write this down. He's going to show how Jesus' resurrection was foretold by Psalm 16.10. That's in verses 22 through 28. And then verses 29 through 36, he's going to say Jesus, who is now risen, has the right to rule from David's throne. Those are the two points he makes. So his introduction, so to speak, is this work that you see where people are hearing in in languages that are their own, this is of God, similar to how it will be in Joel chapter 2. And then he's going to make his proof. This is a great way for you as a soul winner to craft your approach. You find, I, I just had somebody email me the other day and they said, it's hard for me to start conversations. How do I just walk up to somebody and start teaching them the gospel? Well, don't just walk up to them and start teaching them the gospel. Find favorable attention. Be, a, be studious of something that you might have in common with that person. You can even say things, look, it's, it's common to do this in Tampa. You can say it and be right most times out of the year. Nice weather we're having. You know, I mean, that, people can say, I mean, later this afternoon, folks, it's going to be beautiful. It's, it's going to be really nice. You can start a conversation with somebody like that. You, you can Maybe you see somebody at the gym and you're doing similar workouts or whatever it is. You find favorable attention, but then you lay out proofs for why they need to change their mind. You're not just going around with the gospel club and uppercutting people in the face and expecting them to go, oh, thank you, very helpful, I will believe. For some people that might work because the Holy Spirit's working on them, but for many people, you're just going to be another salesman. And we see Peter here, he's going to give very good reasons with Scripture as to why Jesus was who he claimed to be. Now, verse 22, ye men of Israel. Now, this is interesting because he's talking to the Jews now. Hear these words. That doesn't mean everybody else is like, all right, we're not going to pay attention. But he's talking specifically to God's people. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. You know this is exactly what they knew of Jesus because people were clamoring to get around him. What did Jesus do when he went to different cities? He healed their sick. He provided miracles. And in John chapter 6, we see there were many, many people that were following him after he fed them with the the loaves and the fishes. And what did he say to them? You're just here because you just want to get your belly filled. And he makes some statements there that causes people that are like, oh, this this is not what I thought. They left. And then he explains some things to the disciples. But they would have known who Jesus of Nazareth is is a hotly contested figure in their time right now. He came back from the dead, supposedly. We're not really sure. Maybe the disciples stole away the body. Which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Meaning it was, this was decided before the foundation of the world, according to God's foreknowledge, that Jesus was going to be the Lamb which taketh away the sins of the world. Ye have taken this one who is going to be the Messiah, you've taken him, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This is where the the tone of the message changes. What is Peter about to do here? Convict through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's convicting these men of their sin. What is the sin that they did? They rejected the one who was foreordained to deliver them. They rejected him. Some people would say, 
Well, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and they can't get saved. There's still a chance for them to change their mind and believe. But he's saying, you kill them, the one that God foreordained, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him. Now, this is really interesting. People will say, well, you know, Peter, if he's pushing a fake message, he would have just used any scripture to justify. What is unique about this message that you're seeing here and all of the sermons going forward in the book of Acts? They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want you to take a break for just a second. Hold your spot and go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 16. Page 1281, it reads as this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos is the Greek word, and it means breathed out. God breathed out. All Scripture. Now, when this was written, what Scripture was already available? The Old Testament. We can see now that that Old Testament is directly from God, and it is profitable for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Go back to Acts 2 in verse 25. When Peter says, for David, for David speaketh concerning him, this is not Peter trying to figure out how he can weasel his way out of the fact that he stole away Jesus' body, you know, and that the resurrection never happened. He's going to say, when David wrote these things in Psalms 16 and Psalm 16:10. He was speaking about Jesus. This is fulfilled prophecy. It's a very, very large portion of the Scripture. And you as a Bible student and as a witness for Jesus should know these things. They're very important. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. What does it mean for the Holy One to see corruption? That would be Jesus dying on the cross and staying in the grave. What would that have concluded about Jesus? That he was a liar, not the Son of God, and he was born under Adam and had his own sin. But what happened with Jesus? Come on. What happened? Up from the grave he arose. I love that song. First time I heard it was an orchestral piece, and there was this big, big guy up there, and he was a, I'm pretty sure he was a bass and tenor. But he sang, you know, low in the grave he lay. And then when they did the up from the grave he arose, they had the timpanies. Y'all know those timpanies? They're huge. And they go bum, 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 and they're crashing the cymbals and stuff. He came back from the dead because Psalm 1610 prophesied that the Holy One would not see corruption. What is corruption? Death, mortals dying. Jesus was not a mere mortal. He's the Son of God. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. 
Yeah, it's pretty good to know that there's life after death and it's found in Jesus. Men and brethren, let me speak freely. Now, hang on just a second. That was the end of that first defense. He's now going to bring up a second, well, excuse me, not defense, but proposed belief. He's going to bring up his second one. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. They're not wondering which David. They know exactly, <laughs> they know exactly who he's talking about. This is the guy. They were looking for the Messiah out of his lineage, that political savior. That he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. I remember going to Israel this last time, and we drove by where this was. If I wanted to be someone extremely disrespectful, I could prove that David is still there. But when I go to the tomb of my risen Savior, Jesus Christ, it's empty because he has not seen corruption. And because he has risen from the dead, therefore my sins are paid, and I know even though I'll be in, a, in the ground someday, at one, at one point or another, I'm going to be with Jesus with a new body. Amen? That is the hope. And he says, David is dead until this day. Therefore, being a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. Now, I've said this before, and we need to make sure we note it here. He's not saying he'd raise up Jesus of Nazareth. That's not what he's saying. Christ is the title. This, you look at this as president, right? We, we have someone who's in the White House right now, he is not, his, his official name is not President Joe Biden. That's not how it is. That's his title. That's what he's doing. He'll serve his time and then that's it. Pray for that man. <laughs> but when you look at Christ, he will always, Jesus will always be the Christ because that's who, that's who he was chosen to be. And the case is being made that even though David is dead, his seed has lived on in the form of Jesus, to raise up and sit on that throne. So now he's saying, we know of the seed of David, Christ is going to come, the president is going to come, and he's going to sit and rule and reign. And they're probably like, yeah, are you saying that's Jesus? Because <laughs> remember what he just said, with wicked hands, you slew the one who was uh, determined to be in this role, but he's working through. Verse 31, he's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did flesh his flesh see corruption. So he fulfills the prophecy again. Now we're going to see how the resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord and Christ, so that he has the right to the throne. This Jesus, Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all, circle that again, witnesses. You tie that back to Acts 1.8. You tie it back even further to John 15, 26 to 27. The plan of salvation is rolling out, but it was already known in David's time. The expectation was known, but people missed it. And that's largely because of the Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers. They tainted the law to elevate self-righteousness over the need for a Savior. Why do you need a Savior if you could just live a good life and get to heaven? You see how dangerous a works-based gospel message is to people? It leads them skipping and running joyfully straight into hell. We should not endorse that. And we should pray for the people that teach that message because they are also deceived. Therefore, being verse 33, being the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, 
Uh, this, this Peter's bringing all the receipts. We're not just, it's not just something we're coming up with. This is prophesied. He hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Here it is. It's rolled out. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, saith unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. This is God the Father saying to God the Son, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Therefore, what's his conclusion here? Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, this is without a doubt, that God hath made that same Jesus. You connect that, I would, with verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth. That same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, a reminder. Why is that in there? Because they did not believe the things that Peter is saying. Both Lord and Christ. Not only is he the Lord prophesied that would receive the right hand of the Father, he's also Christ, the Messiah. 37 is how you see what the audience interpreted Peter's instruction to be. What does it say? Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they hear this message. Don't forget, because we've studied many verses now that have removed us from verses uh, 1 through 14, which was all the tongues that was being spoken. So people are hearing this stuff in their own language, which is a miracle in and of itself. They see the man who's doing this. They hear he speaks with power and authority. He's saying these things that Jesus did fulfilled the scripture. The common theory is that the disciples stole away the body, and here's one of his disciples publicly talking about it. I believe it's not beyond a shadow of a doubt here, but I think in verse 37, these are people that have just come to faith in Christ. They have just realized, oh, we killed the Christ. What do we do? And this is the instruction that Peter gives. Then Peter said unto them, repent. Now I want to ask you a question. Could they turn from any sin at this point? Was there any specific sin that was committed that they could have turned from? No, it was already done. They already committed the sin. They're not going to go, oops, we're sorry, and all of a sudden the tape rewinds and Jesus never goes to the cross. What happens here? The repent is the Greek word metanoia, which means a change of mind. You were in unbelief about Jesus. Now with the presentation of facts from the drawing of the Holy Spirit, you must now respond. And what is the response? Belief. Because you can see that in verse 36, that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It's not written expressly here, but it's seen in other places of Scripture. The command is to believe on Jesus Christ. And we see specifics for that audience. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or remission of sin, and ye shall receive the same thing I have. What is that? The gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the instruction. Now, we'll chat for a minute. We don't have a lot of time, but we can chat. What baptism is being referred to here? Is it the baptism of water, which would have been the public confession of faith that they once 
denied Jesus as the Christ. They now believe, so they're buried in the likeness of his death, raised to uh, walk again in newness of life, the water represent, uh, representing the blood of Christ. Is that the baptism that he's talking about, or is it the baptism that every believer receives? They're baptized into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12. I would probably say what is being said in this direct influence is the water baptism you should take so that it can be a public demonstration of what you believe. And I only tie that with what is said about the 3,000 that were added. They were baptized. Now, it could also be the baptism of the Spirit. But besides that, there is nothing to indicate here water baptism must follow belief in order to be saved. If that were to be true, I would not have a communion table here. I'd have a tub of nice water to baptize people right away. Because I would say, if baptism is required, then you better get... I might even have my ushers have water ready to throw on you to make sure you don't die without receiving uh, baptism. The point of this here, whether it's talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the baptizing in the body of Christ, or actual water baptism, there is a point for these people who have come to faith to share what they know. Do something with this. Look at 39. For the promise is unto you, Israel, and to your children, and to all that are... We wrote this word down earlier. Who's this? Tampa natives, baby. People of the United States of America. Anybody who is afar off from this place. Even as many... Now he ties it back to what he said in verse 21 about the Joel prophecy. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. How is God doing the calling? Men and brethren, hear! That's the calling. It's not God moving through his predeterminate counsel to pick those against their will and reject those against their will. The message is all listen and believe. Listen and repent. We know that word to be, change your mind. Isn't this a great little sermon here? What was the response? That's the end of his sermon. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Why, why, why does he say, you know, save yourselves? If everything with that generation that rejected the Messiah were to continue, and it did, it leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. You know what happened about, this, uh, this was written A.D. 33. You know what happened about in A.D. 70? Israel was, or excuse me, Jerusalem was torn apart. The temple torn apart, just as Jesus said it would. And they were scattered all the way until 1948 when they became a nation again. That untoward generation continued to, to, to stop what the church was doing, what God was doing through his people. Then, verse 41, they that gladly received this word, and we can tie that with repentance, because that was the instruction. They received it. They were happy about it. I'm saved now because I have my faith in the Messiah, Jesus. <clears throat> they were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Just for fun, I want you to see these other verses. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You know, when we get together as, as, as a body of Christ and we encourage one another over food and drink and we, we go out on, on soul winning, all these different things, this is a part of good natural fellowship. I know some people that think that stuff is unnecessary, it needs to be cut out. Why? 
Why would we have to persecute ourselves and our brothers and sisters in a world that's already persecuting us? You come to church this morning, you should be looking to encourage somebody. We're all a part of this new thing. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together. They had all things in common. Why? Because they're in the body of Christ now. Sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men, and every man had need. So we're going to ask you to, you know, put everything in the church's name. Now, that, that's not what I mean here. But that's what they chose to do of their own volition. They wanted to encourage one another. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. This is beautiful. This is evangelism. This is the body of Christ rolling on and duplicating and duplicating and and adding to. You can close your Bibles. I want you to see that, especially after we look at, at, at Paul's testimony last week when he was going through all the things that he was doing. And we want to see that the message that Paul was teaching does not differ from the message that Peter was teaching, but also God used these men in different ways. What was the end-all conclusion? Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so you're here today, and that is the invitation. If you're here and you do not have any assurance of eternal life, the call is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the call. That's the message. Now, I've been preaching at the, at, from this position for three-something years now. I, I, I teach in different ways, different parts of the Bible, but it all comes together in this one tie. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's no message that should be preached out of a pulpit that conflicts with that. That's what we're doing. We're bearing witness of Him. The message has not changed. There was not some secret apostolic change. There are two major, uh, there are two major, uh, what's the word? I want to, want to say denomination, but I'm going to say theological systems that do change that. It is the Roman Catholic Church and the Calvinist Confessions. They all want to change something about the instruction here. And a lot of it sounds really good, but it fails the test of Scripture, so it should be thrown out. You know why we don't baptize infants here? The Bible doesn't talk about baptizing infants into eternal life. I've been to a christening. If the Roman Catholic Church is correct, then anybody who gets baptized as a child, they'll go to heaven automatically. I kind of wonder, it's like, what's the point of purgatory if they're sealed here? I've yet to go to a Catholic funeral where somebody says, Sister so-and-so is, you know, she's suffering right now in purgatory. Make sure you donate on your way out. And you say, well, they, why would, they wouldn't say that. That's crazy. That's exactly what they teach about people that did not end their lives so well. Well, you can pay them out. You can give to the Catholic Church and it'll intercede. This is why Martin Luther went and did what he did. He started to see, oh, this stuff is not in the Bible that the Catholic Church says. Then along came John Calvin and a lot of his cohorts, and then they, whatever knee-jerk reaction the Catholics were in, they went the opposite way. You can't do anything. God picks. You can't do anything. Who are you, puny man? You know the value of a soul? The blood of Jesus Christ. There's the value of a soul. I don't think God looks down on man and says, thou puny man. I think he demonstrated his love in the giving of his son.
So when I look at my fellow brother, my fellow man, I should also look at him as God looked at him. Jesus died for you. If this hand represents you and me, this represents sin, and this hand represents Jesus Christ. In order for us to have this sin paid, somebody has to pay it who can make an accurate payment. We can't. A lot of good works, people think, will save us. Being here today, some of you may think, well, at least I'm here today. If I were to die today, I could at least say, well, I went to church today. Well, those good works don't save you. The way to sin is death. Somebody has to die. God loves us very much. He sent his son to die for us, but the devil hates us very much, and he keeps people hidden from the truth. This hand representing Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, he went to that cross and took all of that sin, laid it upon himself, was buried, and he rose again three days later to prove that he was exactly who he said he was. I will not allow thine Holy One to see corruption. This Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. What will we do? Biblically, the word repent there is belief. Change your mind from thinking you can find your own payment for sin and self-righteous works of the law. Change your mind and put your faith in Jesus. That's how you can know that you have eternal life. That wallet illustration is not the only way you can get saved, but it's a really good way to demonstrate how a person comes from the state of unbelief to belief. And if you're here today, I urge you, change your mind and believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'd like to give an invitation to anybody that's here today. If you walked in and said, Pastor, I had no idea when I woke up this morning where I was going to go when I died. I'm not that bad of a person, but I realize I've been putting all my trust in myself. And today I'm here, I heard the message, and I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, shed His blood, was buried and rose again to pay for my sin. I know I'm going to heaven I would like to pray for you. If you came to that understanding of belief this morning, would you just raise your hand and let me know? The raising of hand doesn't save you in and of itself. I'm not going to have somebody ask you to come down the aisle. We're not going to take you aside. I just want to know, for the benefit of prayer for you, if you put your trust in Jesus today. Would anybody say, Pastor, please pray for me. I put my trust in Jesus. I know I'm going to heaven. Anyone before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I know most of you, I mean, I, I, it's good. There's, there's some people that have been here for many months now and I'm still getting to know you. But it's so good to know the accuracy and the truthfulness of Scripture. But please don't let that be the only thing you do. I don't want the only thing that you do to be you know, a, a great scholar of the Bible, but never reach anybody with that truth. We have the same Holy Spirit that was given to the apostles. We have the same commission to go out and reach people into the uttermost parts of the earth. You have extreme value as you sit here today. Use this little time that we have in comparison to eternity. Use this little time to build the body of Christ to encourage those who are doing what we can't. Pastor, who are those? Our missionaries. Our brothers and sisters in different states, in different countries all around the world. Pray for them. And then you go to your mission field. 
That's your neighborhood, your family, your workplace. And you plant the seeds of the gospel. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity. I ask that we are blessed today in everything that we do. But Lord, let it all point back to you. We thank you for Jesus and his shed blood and the power that comes with it. We pray for your soon return. Lord, if you came today, what a joyous thing. And we do plead for that. But please give us strength as we wait. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.